Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Fred Schenkelberg. And this is Greg Hutchins. Good morning. How are you, Fred? Hey, pretty good. Um, You know, I've not been online for, what, a month now? And you and Diana and Carl and Chris and a handful of the other hosts have stepped in and take care of a bunch of stuff. And it's mostly due to a bunch of repairs at my house. The house I live in is like 50 years old. And let's just say there's water showing up in places that it really shouldn't be showing up. So my wife and I decided that, well, let's get it fixed. And one of them was uh, a leak. We had, part of the house sits into a hillside. And so the that floor is half buried in the hillside. So there's like a half wall there that's retaining wall. And, and apparently when it rains really hard, which doesn't happen very often here in California, um, it floods that room that's against that upper wall, that uh, earthen wall or floods, I should say, it gets really, really wet. Uh (laughs) And you're not supposed to have, you know, a half inch of water standing in on your carpet and and wooden uh, uh, closets and stuff like that. So it's a pain. So the first time that happened, a contractor that we know and and trust, he said, well, let's just put a sealant on here, put a concrete cap on it and seal it. and, And that should keep the water out. Well, then it didn't rain for five years. We had very, very little rain. And this winter it rained a lot. And obviously that solution wasn't right. The assumption was, is that the water was coming from the surface. Well, it wasn't. It's groundwater that is attacking that wall. And we learned the hard way when they opened up that trenched along that uh, wall is the, uh, it wasn't sealed. There wasn't any sealant on the, on the cinder blocks. It was just stacked up and there wasn't, even a, a drain underneath it. There wasn't a French drain and a handful of other things to deal with groundwater. That would, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it rarely shows up. It only shows up when there's like a typhoon remnants come flying over our area and drop a ton of rain. So it's not a common problem. And then yet I know firsthand building practices include anything that touches the ground should deal with water. It has to you know, (laughs) deal with it. So whatever reason, they decided not to do that. And talking to a person that had been working on the house for the previous owners for a long, long time says, oh yeah, that room always, always floods when it rains hard. Well, why didn't you do anything about it? (laughs) You know, it's, it's one thing to live with it. It's another thing to, you know, think about fixing it. (laughs) But uh, and it's just the tip of the iceberg of all kinds of things that I see here at the house. and But also in industry is that, well, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And if you can get it running again and it runs well enough, that's that's fine. You know, just patch it and go and let the next shift take care of it or the next generation take care of it. If the product uh, has you know, a failure rate in the field. Well, that always happens, you know, it's, (laughs) we're not going to change it. And there's all kinds of reasons for, you know, not changing something because the cost of changing it may be too high, but it's one of those attitudes of, well, 
yeah, that would be a lot of work to fix it, to really understand the problem and fix it, to do the detailed failure analysis, to sort out what's really happening and where the mistakes were made and we can fix it. As opposed to, well, let's just patch it. Let's assume it's this, this, and this and try it. And I see that in the construction of this house, but also in industry, you know, if, if, oh, I know what that problem is. And they go try it. And the symptom shows up again and again and again. And, and they say, well, let's try something else. Well, why don't you spend 10 minutes and figure out what the real problem is kind of thing? Oh, boy. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you want me to dive into it? Oh, sure. All right. So, boy, I've got about three layers of of stuff. So basically it comes down to decision making. Um, are you going to have a short-term outlook or are you going to have a long-term outlook? Yep. Are you going to have a quality outlook where where are you, where everything should be perfect and everything should be high cost, or are you going to have a practical outlook where good is good enough, or are you going to have a safety outlook? And let me give you an example. This is something that's occurring to me personally this week. I live in Portland, Oregon, uh, very close to downtown, affluent neighborhood. <laughs> Read expensive houses, bungalows, normally made in the 1920s. But these craftsman houses now mm -hmm. are very, very valuable. So I live in this very expensive enclave close to downtown. <laughs> but I have the worst looking house in the neighborhood. But didn't you just get your roof done? Well, last year, you're right. Yeah. But that was a practical decision. Yeah. They took seven tons of material off the roof. We had about four to seven layers. So that was a safety slash reliability slash quality thing. I needed to have that done. Get yeah. rid of those 14, I mean, 14,000 pounds of crap on my roof. Yeah. But now I have a painting decision. So that's the critical issue. It's a decision. Okay. Should I paint my house to look better than everybody else in the neighborhood and potentially become a target? Now, let me explain that. I live in this affluent neighborhood. Uh, crime has just been increasing 20 to 30% a year um, all over Portland. And it's encroaching in our neighborhood. Why? Because we're in a tractor. Uh, expensive houses, very expensive cars. And people come from the outside and decide to steal, blah, blah, blah. So the question is, well, we want to, this is the objective. We want to paint the house. I want to look at it functionally. I want to paint the house with this type of paint so that the wood is safe. Right. My daughter and my you know ex-wife want to paint it so it looks good and enhances its value. Okay, so we have two different ways of looking at the same problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah me, functional, um, or my daughter and my wife, ex-wife, looking at it in terms of uh, form. So it's a form versus function type of debate. Mm -hmm. Ultimate is the decision. What are we going to paint it? How much are we going to invest in it? Because if we paint it and make it look like a really great house, what happens? It becomes a trigger for human behavior or a trigger for people to target our house, my house, and my safety in terms of stealing it, robbing, you know, taking our cars or whatever, right? So that's a personal decision. <laughs> you know. 
Well, what here's, the functional one is good is good enough. It, it protects the wood. Yeah. It, it does its primary purpose of creating it. And then you can add the flourish <laughs> of, well, we're going to enhance the trim and we're going to make it, you know, look really cool. Um, but the form enhances the value of the house, but makes it a trigger for people to steal from. Well, there's a cost benefit trade-off there, isn't it? If it gives you your house $100,000 <laughs> pop in value which is only real if you sell the house right bingo <laughs> uh, you know versus it increases you know if you have a one percent chance per year of being burglarized but it increases it to two percent well then what's the it, there's an emotional element to that that's beyond my reckoning <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm an engineer. <laughs> I'm to me, challenged. it's all function. To the other uh, stakeholders, it's form. Yeah. So, by the way, the numbers are at the present state. I'm guessing my burglary uh, percentage is two percent. If I make it comparable to the other houses, or even better, it probably raises it up to maybe ten to fifteen percent probability that it'll be burglarized. This is based on the statistics in the neighborhood. Wow. They're astounding, really astounding. So what would you do, Fred? Would you keep the place in visual disrepair or would you basically go after the form uh, function, the form um, decision? And me, I'd probably be the one paying the bill. So I use the <laughs> simplest paint that'll hold up for five or 10 years. So I don't have to do it again real soon. You know? Well, I go totally functional on that. <laughs> hey, I'm going totally functional too, but there's one of me and two of them. So well, then they can open their pocketbook and and pay the extra insurance and the security systems and and everything else. But I, then the decision goes from an ROI, technical mind based decision, to one of gut and heart, yeah. and psychology. So well, as final, there's at a the lot end of, of that. Day, what are you going to defer to? Your head, and your head as an engineer, or those other folks who are two of them. <laughs> uh, that sounds like a personal decision, there, Greg. But still, I, that's I, how I, most decisions in life are made. Oh, well, I know. I'm I'm thinking of the parallel example as you're on a factory floor and a piece of equipment goes down, and the ops manager is an, a major stakeholder and says, "Get it running now," leaving yep. no time for troubleshooting or actually understanding what caused the failure and, and fixing that nice segue to the factory floor yeah i mean it's it's identical it's different stakeholders with different priorities and and but it's also a lack of of in my mind on the factory floors is look boss if you give me 20 minutes here i can actually understand this problem and maybe prevent them i have increased the probability of preventing future unscheduled breakdowns or unscheduled maintenance so that our overall availability goes up if you want me to shave 20 minutes off here we're going to pay three hours next week kind of thing and that's a similar in the argument you're Argue, you know, saying, well, if we make it too nice, then it increases our odds of, of negative consequence versus if I get it running now, we decrease the odds of a positive outcome. So let me let me throw something else into it. What you see depends upon where you sit from the from the 
person who owns or runs a piece of machinery, they want to make better product. They want to have higher reliability. Well, they also are looking at it as at the end of the day, they need to have X number of widgets on the truck. Ah, so you're looking at throughput. Okay. I mean, it, it's that way or profitability or whatever. They got to hit their numbers. That's right. And and basically the production manager needs to have throughput, needs to have basically, you know, um, uptime. And that uptime could be maybe $6,000 for that 20 minute decision. Right. And essentially the worker, the main, you know, the person on the line doesn't see the 6,000 bucks, but the production manager certainly does. Yeah. And it might be his or her job. But it, you know, it's, it's, it's that trade-off you mentioned it earlier is, it, is <laughs> it's not what I, the problem I have with the phrase good is, is often good enough is that, well, what is, how good is, does it need to be? to be good enough? What's that criteria? Just because I can get it up and running in 20 minutes, or just because I can functionally paint the house, or we can, you know, repair a, a drainage issue. Um, there's trade-offs on that. It'll cost us that $6,000 or, or downtime, or we won't hit our numbers today. Yet the argument is, is that this fixing the stuff, the water issues around our house, will make the house sound and not deteriorate faster uh, over the next 50 years, you know, kind of thing. It's, it's now, if we were planning on moving in a year, we probably wouldn't have bothered, you know, because <laughs> we're sitting in a different place. Yet it's one of those where it's, it, I don't know how to get the emotional part out of it. And, and there are, different stakeholders and different parts of it. But my overall thought is, is reframing it so that the maintenance person and the ops person are on the same page saying, yes, I understand it's going to cost us extra money to be down while I really sort out what's going on. Yet it increases the odds that we have fewer of these kinds of problems and our availability, our uptime goes up. But that's it improves. That's a supposition. Unless you have metrics or data to support that statement, right. that if we fix it now, it'll preempt or prevent problems in the future, is a supposition. We don't know that unless we have data to support that conclusion. Right. And in a factory that's always been fix it as quick as you can, and, and they're just running around you know, repairing uh, broken equipment all the time, they don't have that data. Yet the analogy that I think even an even a manager can understand, <laughs> no offense, Greg, <laughs> I know you've been in a management role a few times, is if you ignore putting oil in your car and ignore the oil light, and because I got a meeting to get to, I got to get to the air, I got to get to work, I got to do it to the groceries, I got, I don't have time to go do an oil change. That's just, you know, it's still running. Why, why do I bother? Until their engine blows up, you know, fails completely. Now they had it. Now they're down for a week getting a new engine, um, if they can get the parts these days. But the idea is, is that we regularly do simple maintenance on our vehicles. It is an inconvenience that yet we intuitively know or learned the hard way by some of us, I imagine, that if you don't maintain your engine, it will fail catastrophically. And now you, instead of a $50, you know, maintenance service call or whatever, or a couple hundred dollars for typical maintenance. 
it's going to be tens of thousands of dollars and, okay. uh, and, and lost utility for that duration. So you're talking to someone, Fred, who's blown multiple engines. Oh, geez. You're blown heads, uh, warp heads. Did I ever mention preventative maintenance to you? We've got a whole podcast on it, I think. Well, okay. Well, you hit me on a bad morning, friend. So anyway, let me give you the, you know, I'm one of these people, whether it's good or bad, that I want uptime. I want to finish the project on schedule, on budget. Uh, quality normally takes a second seat, even though I've been in quality many years. So here's a problem I have with a lot of your podcasts. So don't take it personally. Yeah. You talk tools. Great. I love all these tools. But at the end of the day, I want to know what is the decision that's behind choosing this tool? What's the process, mental process, where good is good enough? Or how is this tool, the decisions, the data coming out of the tool, going to make life better, easier, quicker, faster, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. For me. Yay. I wrote a whole book on that. I know you did. I know you <laughs> did. But every podcast should basically end with that. You know, what's the takeaway? What's the lessons learned? You know? Yeah, what, that's true. Yeah, we don't usually like summarize me. real well. Yeah. Yeah. What what do stupid people like me who blow engines, multiple, many engines, you know, can learn from your stuff? <laughs> yeah, anyway yeah that's that's, that's a, a tangent friend well it's it's <laughs> you know and well i can buy into this good and it's good enough is is in <laughs> in selecting a particular approach to whether it's maintenance or design or whatever uh -huh. is yeah we can't all afford to make something that will never fail and and be so super easy to maintain and meet all of those criteria and still get it out on time and at a price point that somebody would actually want to buy it. So there's, there's immediate trade-offs just even from my point of view. Yeah. When I'm looking at saying doing an accelerated test, for example, in a design process, I could go all the way to the far ends of the most complex and detailed molecular structure, PhD level, uh, material science and really, really understand the details of how this thing fails and all that other good stuff. And it would take me five years, right? Product launches in six months. So when I get an answer, that product's already out of production. <laughs> you know, it's, it, the answer would not be useful for anybody at all. It'd be great for the record books. I might get a paper published, but that's about it. But in our disposable society, if we want that product only to last six months, because we know from the uh, failure rates that anything beyond that will be uh, catastrophic. Well, hopefully not catastrophic, but we'll have a, an, a, uh, an accelerated failure rate. And if we're designing for six months, basically that says good is good enough. Right. Or even five years is if or we have years. a question. Exactly. Yeah, if we have if we have a question like on a solder joint, a new fangled design of a solder connection. Mm -hmm. If we have enough engineering judgment and simulation work and stuff like that, that says there were similar designs that we've seen and they last five years at a reasonably low failure rate, it's good enough. Go on with it. Yep, it's, yep, what, yep. it's it's in that realm. And it comes back to the, what you triggered on is that, <laughs> I mean, there's a whole range from 
yeah, it's okay. Don't worry about it. It's engineering judgment says that's fine. Move on. You got plenty mm -hmm. of anecdotal evidence. It's good enough. Yep, yep, yep. Versus that, no, I want the details. And I could go do the full PhD, deep dive, you know, get a whole team of scientists together and, and experiment it 400 ways. And it'd take forever and cost a fortune. And But does it matter? No, that's what I mean. There's a whole spectrum of stuff. So part of the process is, and that's part of that, part one of the chapters of the book is, well, what are all the constraints? They finally <laughs> have six months and that's when they need the decision. Well, what form of data do you need? You know, how detailed do you need it to be? What's the investment you're willing to put in it to get more information to help you make a decision? And that helps you pick what style of approach you would take. So do I do an engineering judgment? Do I do a simple comparison test? Do I do a, a accelerated life test? Do I do, you know, literature searches? What technique is viable, one, to provide adequate information in balance with the time and all the other constraints that we have. And there are cases where the boss wants it, the full PhD study, yet it's only going to give you $3.18 in two days. Well, in $3.18 in two days, this is all you're going to get. <laughs> you know, oh. that's, so it's, it's <laughs> then the negotiations start. Well, what do you really need? You know, what's that worth to you? This is clever, Fred. This is where you plug your book, you know, and make the segue to, oh, by the way, this is the name of the book and you can buy it for Amazon. And it'll be in the show notes. Somebody... It'll be in the show notes. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I'm not worried about that. But the idea is, you know, the idea of being good is good enough is under what set of criteria. And if we have two different people sitting in two different parts of the organization that view the process and the details and the problem from their own point of views, the, the only real solution is they got to talk. They got to sort out, well, what is it you really need? What are the constraints? What are the boundaries? What are the uh, available resources to solve this? What are the options we have available? And if we can't get there from here, well, boss, it's up to you. Make a decision. You know, no, here's my I advice. One other thing. We don't need a reliability engineer. Well, we don't. That's many, right. many organizations don't have them and to their own peril is my content there. But some organizations run really, really well because they have that reliability mindset. They they understand those trade-offs of short-term versus long-term. And the if I fix it quick and patch it with duct tape and bailing wire, I'll be back at it next week. If I understand it and fix it correctly, I don't have to worry about it for a long, long time and I can move on and solve other problems. And so do you want it now? Or do you want it done well? And there's always a trade-off always. I agree to that. You don't need a reliability well, person for that. Decision. I would add that the reliability person or the quality person needs to speak and understand the language of the boss of the business. Oh yeah. Yeah. There we totally agree. Okay. Yeah. Totally agree. It's been a fun one. <laughs> yeah. But it, and I think that wraps it up though, is, is that, you know, good is good enough depends. Um, yep. Do you have a common understanding what good enough is? What are all those balances and constraints? What's right for the business? What's right for the customer and so on? Yeah, there's a ton of nuance in all of those. So having a good rapport and good working relationship with all the stakeholders 
is a good start for all that good stuff. So what do you think, Greg? Is this good enough for this podcast? I think it's good enough. The other thing I would add would be it's all about. Oh, now you don't. Now you don't think it's good enough. You're going to add something. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, catch you later, Fred. Thanks a lot. <laughs> right. It's a good one. Thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. We invite you to join the conversation. If you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show, please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.